0: The views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of the station. Content is for educational purposes only. Consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence if investing. The show was pre-recorded earlier this week. The Everyday Wealth radio show and podcast are produced and created by Edelman Financial Engines and hosted by Gene Chatsky and Soledad O'Brien. Ms. Chatsky and Ms. O'Brien are not employees or clients of the firm. They receive fixed cash compensation for acting as hosts and related activities and therefore have an incentive to endorse Edelman Financial Engines and its planners. For additional information, please see everydaywealth.com. The 2022 Top 100 Independent Advisory Firm Ranking, issued by Barron's, is qualitative and quantitative, including assets managed, revenue generated, regulatory records, staffing levels and diversity, technology spending, and succession planning. Firms elect to participate, but do not pay to be included in the ranking. Compensation is paid for use and distribution of rating. Awarded September 2022, based on data within a 12-month period. Investor experience and returns are not considered. Due to the holiday weekend, today, we're rebroadcasting previously aired segments. At the intersection of life and money, this is Edelman Financial Engines Everyday Wealth with award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien. Personal finance expert Gene Chatsky and Edelman Financial Engines wealth planner Jason Cowens. Edelman Financial Engines has been ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. Now, here's Gene Chatsky, Soledad O'Brien, and Jason Cowens.
1: Hey, everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky, And I'm Soledad
2: O'Brien, and you're listening to Everyday Wealth. Today, we're continuing our new series on aging. Last week, you'll recall, we took a look at reinventing retirement through using a phased approach. And on this week's show, we're going to explore aging through its impacts on family, really get into the details on how you can best prepare. So joining us today is Nora Super. She's executive director of the Milken Institute Center for the Future of Aging. And if you have a question, or a topic that you'd like to see us cover on a future show, be sure to visit planefe.com, visit the everyday wealth page where you can submit your questions to us. Before we get to any of that though, Gene, let's
1: begin with what's going on in financial news. And let's start Soledad with what we're calling the unretirement. So just a reminder, About two and a half million people retired earlier than expected during the pandemic. In February, close to 3% of those retirees returned. So why are they coming back? Well, labor shortages, recent drops in the stock market have them questioning their portfolios. But the other factor was that many of those folks realized they're not as financially prepared as they originally thought to stop working completely, which I think is just a really good reminder that it is a great idea five to 10 years before you retire to sit down with a financial advisor and make sure that you're heading in the right direction. Also last week, we had a bipartisan 401k bill pass the House. And when I say bipartisan, the vote was 414 to 5. It's not law yet. The Senate still needs to consider action on the bill, but given that huge margin in the House, it's a pretty good shot that it's going to pass. So, let's go over what it's likely to do. First of all, enrollment in a 401k will become automatic at companies that have more than 11 employees. Doesn't mean you have to be in, but it does mean if you don't want to be in, you're going to have to opt out. Also, the size of those catch-up contributions that people are able to make for retirement are going to jump. For people who are 62, 63, and 64, they're going to jump from the current $6,500 to $10,000. And you'd be able to delay pulling money out of your retirement accounts, making those required minimum distributions until age 75. So we're going to keep you up to date as it happens. Finally, one more thing. And I thought Soledad, you would like this story. If you were watching the markets earlier in the week, you saw Twitter stocks soar about 30% when Elon Musk revealed that he had taken a 9% stake in the company. And Soledad, he tweeted about 3000 times last year. And I just want to know if that's more than you. No, I tweeted probably more, but he's not shy about using
2: Twitter to stir things up a bit. So it could get very messy and uh, investors super happy. Yep. People who use Twitter less happy. Of course. That's my non-official analysis of the data that I've seen (laughs) by just
1: watching people post about Elon Musk. That's how I read the situation as well.
2: So as I mentioned, we've got an interview today with Nora Super from the Milken Institute. She's the executive director there for the Center for the Future of Aging. Her job is to really think about strategic direction around healthy longevity and then how that intersects with financial wellness. So nice to have you as a guest, Nora. Thanks for talking with us. I know you've done a a ton of research on brain health and dementia. Talk to me a little bit about that piece of it along with the financial and then emotional impact that it has on both the person who's dealing with those diagnoses and also the caregivers.
3: Great. Well, thank you for having me, Soledad and Jean. It's so wonderful to be part of this discussion and so timely for today. I've been working in the field of aging for a little over 30 years. You know, I got interested in these issues early on in my career, but the issue of dementia is very personal to me. My father had Alzheimer's disease and his three siblings as well. So our family really experienced it firsthand, but millions of Americans and Really, people throughout the world are going through this today. In the United States, about six million people live with Alzheimer's disease and dementia. And we expect those numbers to increase. Now, this is mainly due to good news. We have had medical advances and public health advances that have allowed us to live longer than ever before. But unfortunately, there's no cure for Alzheimer's disease or dementia right now. And age is the longest risk factor. You know, what we saw in caring for my dad, who was a medical doctor, and my sister and I know enough about health insurance and information to be dangerous, but certainly to advocate on his behalf. The way he was treated in the healthcare system, you know, there was so many indignities in his care. And I really came out of that experience realizing, you know, here we were a family of privilege. My dad was a doctor. We have white European descent. And even with that privilege, we were treated so badly in the system. And unfortunately, older people today are really discriminated against because many in the healthcare system think that their lives are over and why should we worry about them? I just shuddered to think about this was our experience. What would this mean for people of color who have been traditionally discriminated against, people who might not speak English, people who certainly don't understand the healthcare system the way my sister and I do and set up something we call the Alliance to Improve Dementia Care to try to make it better for everyone. Talk to me a little bit about one of those indignities. I know what you mean because my mom had
2: dementia probably for seven years. So I would love for people who might not know specifics of what you're talking about? Give me an example.
3: One image that just is still implanted on my mind. One time when my dad had been hospitalized, it's very common for people with dementia to have multiple um, chronic conditions that they're caring for. And unfortunately our healthcare, long-term care systems don't always take into account that these people have cognitive decline. So their ability to understand, to listen, I mean, this was just exacerbated during COVID when people with dementia weren't even allowed to bring caregivers into the rooms with them, so no one to help translate that information. The indignity that we remember the most is, my sister had a full-time job, she was caring for two kids of her own, and my dad lived closest to her. The hospital called her and said, you know, your dad's being discharged, come and get him. And she said, well, I can't. I'm at work and, you know, I have two kids and can you at least keep them till five so I can work this out with my husband and we can, you know, figure out how to come get my dad from the hospital. And they said, no, we need the bed. We need to discharge him now, which is just an indictment to me of our healthcare system that it's more important to be able to charge People, another person for that bed than to really treat the one who's there with care and dignity. So when my sister finally arrived to find my dad in a wheelchair in the middle of the hospital corridor, Mm. and he had soiled himself. This was in a major university medical center. Again, my dad was a chief of psychiatry at a major hospital in his career, and here he was just left alone with the indignity of not being even changed. You know, I just share that with people because it was awful for all of us to think about my dad being treated that way.
1: Hey, Nora, the thing about a dementia diagnosis, it can last a long time, right? We are really instructed to think about needing long-term care for no more than three years in general. What's the best way to think about preparing yourself for a financial situation or the possibility of this happening in your life?
3: That's a great question, Jean. And yes, on average, people live uh, five to seven years after a dementia diagnosis. But some people live as long as 20 years. And it's really hard to predict. So we recently wrote a paper with the Retirement Income Institute that looks at the risk of long-term care, uh, the risk to your financial security and retirement, explored these issues that you mentioned and try to give people some tips to better prepare. You know, in our case, my father had a state pension which helped us pay for his care, so we didn't have to worry about it until the very end when he was in a nursing home, and it was $6,000 a month. I have a big family, we were able to all divide it, but too often people have to spend down to be on Medicaid and lose all of their assets at retirement, and this impoverishes many people. I think the best thing to think about is the income that you have. There's some products on long-term care insurance, There are other ways that you could protect against this with hybrid life insurance plans that are coupled with long term care insurance. We also have long term care annuities. You know, as part of the Retirement Income Institute, we really advocate for lifetime income. So this pension that my dad had was an annuity that came in every single month that we could count on until the day he died. Most people don't have those types of pensions anymore, but you can purchase annuity products. So that can really help to prepare for these long-term care expenses.
1: Nora, we were just diving into some of the positive impacts that people can have on their own lives by doing a little bit of planning. When should you start? At at what age should we be looking at planning for this kind of income that you're talking about, the kind of income that could carry us through a long-term care situation in retirement?
3: Well, whatever age you are listening to this, you should start now. That's, that's my advice. You know, I do think that the best thing you can do is make sure that you have steady income um, that will last as long as you think you'll live. And, you know, today life expectancy is, is around 78. I could talk some about how COVID has impacted that. But children born today are really expected to live to be 100 years old. So that just helps put it in perspective. It's kind of terrifying when you calculate (laughs) that along
2: with sort of the math around how much money you're going to need to keep yourself housed and fed. And and that's if you're in great shape if you're actually very healthy. Um, my uncle uh, in Australia had Alzheimer's for 18 years. He lived in a facility. I mean, you can just imagine the expense uh, of, of, of that, Are there ways, Nora, that people
3: can think about improving their health? Absolutely. At the Center for the Future of Aging, we focus on both financial security and healthy longevity. And we feel that these two issues are really linked together so that, you know, if you have some wealth, you're likely to have health and vice versa. That being said, there are things we can do every day. The risk factors for dementia, for example, is very similar to risk factors for heart disease, stroke, et cetera. So we really advocate if it's good for your heart, it's good for your brain. And I think, um, you know, the, the couple things that I would mention in that regard, it's sometimes hard for everybody to remember all that they can do. But physical activity is one of the best things you can do for your heart health, for your brain health. Even just taking a walk every day can really make a difference in your lifetime health. You know, it's interesting as you say that, I mean, my parents who were were
2: quite frail toward the very end, um, they became more and more isolated too, right? their Their circle of what they were able to do. I mean, partly just physically, they couldn't go anywhere. Once my mom was in a wheelchair, just getting her out of the apartment was so, much harder, right? Everything just became less and less connected each and every day. And isolation, I think, has been a big experience for people who are not even old, but just older. That has to impact your mental health, your physical health, and all of that, your financial health, too.
3: Uh, Absolutely. I mean, there are studies that say, you know, loneliness is equal to smoking a pack of cigarettes a day in terms of what it does to your health. And, uh, you know, it's people from all ages that really have experienced more social isolation and loneliness throughout the pandemic as we've been, you know, not able to see family and friends um, as often as possible. But also, especially for older people, because they were at greater risk for infection from covid like us, you know, using Zoom has opened up worlds to a lot of older adults, that they're able to interact with their grandparents or their kids in ways that they didn't have before. I think that checking in is a really important thing. I always tell young people, it's like, call your grandmother, call your grandfather. They'll be so happy to hear from you. I do a lot of word games, Wordle, every day, uh,
1: the the New York Times, Spelling Bee, a whole bunch of them, and, and Sudoku. And I'm always thinking, okay, this is going to be really good for my brain health down the road i think the research on whether these sorts of puzzles work is actually kind of mixed maybe you can enlighten us on that but what what are the signs of cognitive decline what are the things that we should be on the lookout for
3: Well, you know, we know now that you're likely to be developing dementia about 20 years before you see any symptoms, and there's, you know, some good news on some, you know, blood-based tests that will be able to detect this very early, but for now you know, this is a money management show. I will say money, uh, the ability to manage money is generally one of the first signs that people can see. How do you see it? How does it show up? So I just want to say there's a big difference between normal aging and cognitive decline. And a lot of people think that it's inevitable that you'll get cognitive decline. And that's not true. So even in your 80s, it's about a third of the population that has cognitive decline. So two-thirds of us will be, you know, fine. We may forget our keys. Sometimes we may forget somebody's name. That's normal. What's not normal is if you forget how to drive to the grocery store, someplace that you've been uh, many times. If you uh, forget what household items are used for, you'll find people sometimes put things in the wrong place. They'll put their clothes in the refrigerator or their food in their closet. Um, And in terms of money management, we really see, um, you know, differences where people start to, you know, not be able to balance their checkbook anymore. Um, You know, they get confused about how much things cost. Sometimes people make really bad judgment decisions too. If you see some people making decisions about what they want to invest their money in, how they want to transfer, they're very likely to be victims of fraud, unfortunately. And so it's really important for family members to pay attention, to try to become a financial caregiver early on. Can I ask about the financial
2: implications for somebody who basically gives up their career and to some degree, a big chunk of their life because they're taking care of an older parent? Is there anything in place for people who are caregivers to help them replace a lot of the income they're going to lose if, in fact, they step away from work in order to take care of an elderly parent who needs a lot of support?
3: Yeah. Unfortunately, our country doesn't do much. Women tend to be the ones who do this. It's how we're socialized. And unfortunately, because of the income gaps between men and women, it makes more financial sense sometimes for the woman to drop out of the workforce and the man to stay in the workforce. But this perpetuates this income inequality over time for women, their own health deteriorates as they're caregivers. Eighty-three percent of caregiving in the U.S. still comes from family members, friends, or other unpaid caregivers. One thing we're really advocating for is paid family leave, um, and you know this has been brought up in Congress um, as something that's really important. And we're really one of the only countries, developed countries in the world, that doesn't have paid family leave. But the good news is, is that several states have started to adopt it. At the beginning of 2022, we have nine states in the District of Columbia that have uh, done this. So the good news is to look into what you're entitled to in your state. And if you're not entitled to it, reach out to your member of Congress and say, I want this. I shouldn't have to leave, you know, quit my job to take care of my family member.
1: Three tips. For people who are looking at their own financial situations and looking at the fact that, yeah, we probably are going to live a lot longer than we ever expected. What do you do right now to set yourself up?
3: Well, I think one question you have to ask yourself is what matters to you? What What do you want the and you know the latter part of your life to look like? So if it's I want to spend time with my grandparents, I want to travel, those types of things, then you need to look at your finances and what makes sense and and come up with a monthly budget for what you have, what the plans that you have might cost. But then don't forget these other costs. the health care cost, we can look at percentages of that. What are the prescriptions? Are there ways they could? maybe shift to generic drugs? Could they go to a doctor that's in network? So look at your health expenses and see ways that you may reduce them now that will be helpful for you as you get older. And then finally, look at some of these investments that we talked about earlier. Look at annuity products as a way to have a lifetime income in addition to your Social Security. So those are some of the tips that I would give folks just as a starting point to really look at um being secure in their retirement, which is what we want for everyone.
1: Nora Super from the Milken Institute Center for the Future on Aging. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's been a great conversation. We hope you'll come
3: back. Wonderful, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed speaking with you both.
0: With talk of a recession coming, it's time to ask yourself, is your financial plan ready to handle it? Talk to an Edelman Financial Engines Wealth Planner and learn how to help prepare for whatever lies ahead. Call 833 PLAN EFE or visit planefe.com to get connected.
1: So every week we are guided by experts from Edelman Financial Engines. These are the folks who work with clients every single day to help them get their financial lives together. And today we're happy to welcome back Jason Cowens. Jason is a wealth planner from Chandler, Arizona. So good to see you, Jason. Good to be back. Good to see you both. Hi, Jason. Thank you. So let me ask you a question because
2: Nora mentioned annuities, and very much a fan. Do you have clients who talk to you about annuities as some somebody- Something that they'll be able to rely on as they age?
4: Oh, absolutely. In Arizona, we have a very high tendency to have clients or new clients come with existing annuities. And what we tend to do is really review them. Let's look at the bells and whistles that's unique about your annuity to make sure it's aligning with what your future goals are. But fundamentally, we're not big fans of general for annuities. Annuities aren't bought, they're sold. And a lot of the way the annuity agents present it is they talk about the safety of it without really going over the liquidity, the cost, some of the other expenses. So they're not inherently bad, just a lot of times clients aren't aware of how they work.
1: I agree with you, Jason, on that point, but I tend to be more of a fan of these products than you are. And Why? Yeah, here's why. So I'm not advocating that people take their entire retirement stash and use it to buy an annuity, which basically provides, like Nora said, a paycheck that will last with you in many cases as long as you live and your spouse lives, depending on how you structure it. But I do think knowing that your fixed expenses in retirement are covered, you don't have to worry about what it's going to cost to keep a roof over your head or to make Medicare premiums each month is a way of taking a lot of stress out of the equation, no matter what the markets do. Just having that peace of mind actually makes people happier. And there's been some research that shows Retirees don't spend down their assets, especially their principal. There's this fear of digging into my principal and spending too much. But the people who have annuities actually feel a little bit more able to live life on their own terms.
4: Well, and I agree. There's absolutely some value in, we'll call it that happiness index. My fear, though, was that client who has this fixed annuity coming in, that fixed annuity portion may not be keeping up with inflation. And as you both know, we're in this really high inflationary number. And if they've had this annuity for five or 10 years, they may be so far behind inflationary needs that now they're dipping more into their wealth than they realized. And what I've found is a lot of the clients who inherently have some annuity, their investments are also conservative. So they're getting this double whammy. And what we'd rather do as a firm is like, let's do a goal-based number to really see what are you supplementing your income from? Is it your investments? Is it pension? And find out what that withdrawal rate actually feels like related to you, not reverse engineering your lifestyle based on a fixed income. And I think doing the planning early, we can make it where you can have both worlds, where you can create this dynamic portfolio that inherently should outlive you, but keep that happiness indexes going, even in up and down markets, without being fixed or lack of liquidity in certain annuity products.
1: The key word in everything that you just said is planning and understanding. I don't believe that people should buy products that they don't understand. I agree with you that all of these things are best done with forethought we're in a world where annuities are changing and many annuities have already changed. And because of the SECURE Act, we were talking a little bit earlier in the show about SECURE 2.0. Well, SECURE 1.0 cleared the way for annuities in 401k plans, for 401k providers to allow you to annuitize some of the money that you have built up, that's going to continue to play a role in people's understanding of these products.
4: As that industry evolves and makes it better for the participant and being in the 401k makes it an easier option, it makes it easier for us to plan on if they're coming to us with that option. What makes the client happy, but at the same time not being so conservative? And I'll use exactly what you said. they are also introducing the ability to buy crypto assets in the 401k, the new versions, right? So we want to make sure clients understand what they're buying, even when we can't actually physically manage it. One other concern about the annuities is the lack of flexibility oftentimes. So when you lock up that money, you may be stuck in it for some set period of time that has a surrender schedule, So maybe two years into it, you say, I desperately need money out of my annuity. Well, if you're only two years into it, you may only have access to what they call a 10% free withdrawal amount, but that may not be enough to cover what you need. So if you need more than that, in order to take money out, you may be hit with a surrender cost for the value you're taking. So that's another lack of flexibility that some of those annuities give you as well.
1: I get it. It's a reason that I don't advocate for annuitizing everything. It's not just the growth that you need with your portfolio, but you need some flexibility as well, and all of these things should be carefully considered. We just pulled a big piece of research out of the field at Her Money. One of the big findings was that when it comes to accumulating assets for retirement, people really understand how to do this. We have learned since, for 401ks were invented 45 years ago how to save we have learned how to invest that money we have no clue when it comes to making that money last we are just scratching our heads and it is as big and as important a piece of the puzzle if not more important and it's just another reason why if you've been accumulating and you don't know what you're going to do next you got to talk to somebody you got to get some help
4: Oh, I agree. And, and the the paying yourself, starting early—that's the great way to accumulate wealth. And really, the goal as a planner here is to let's direct your effort. Right. Let's make sure it's in line with what you're doing. Let's make sure you're not being too aggressive or too conservative. So I absolutely agree. Accumulate wealth. We'll figure out how to help you spend it later.
2: I can even help with that, how to spend it. Come on. Uh, You know, I'm always curious. I've found that people who become caregivers, often they're just completely gobsmacked. Like you might prepare for your retirement. You might even prepare for needing long term care. But I sure as heck didn't say, gee, what if I have to cut way back on my schedule because my mom and dad are not doing well and let me financially plan to be able to do that? I, I don't hear people do that a lot. Is that a
1: conversation that you're having with your clients? Well, and you're right, Soledad, because the levers that you can pull on when it comes to parents who need help are a really minimal, right? If you're thinking about like somebody our age, right, or, or somebody my age, because I'm a couple years older than you and we've got old- Older parents, we've got kids who are around college age and we want to someday retire ourselves, we can push back that retirement a couple of years. We can borrow for college, but if our parents need care, if our parents need help, we're just going to do it. And so I think that the best thing that you can do with an older parent is to just try to minimize the surprise understand what they're likely to need from you.
4: Well, that's part of the conversation. We're talking about that sandwich generation. If you're helping your kids, let's talk about your parents. They may need financial support, and I need to make sure if it's going to happen day one of retirement, we plan for it as another expense item. So oftentimes I'm saying, Tell me about your parents' situation. Are you the executive of their estate? Are you going to be their caregiver? Is one of the two of you possibly going to stop working and thereby not be able to contribute to your 401k, or thereby not adding more money to it? And having those conversations on the front end is part of that early engagement because this planning is a family affair.
2: So now let's shift the conversation. We're going to do a deep dive into paying for health care because that can be
1: a really big portion of some of these high costs. In fact, it's one of the top three costs for retirees. Healthcare costs have just been growing at well above the rate of inflation for quite some time. Half of Americans age 50 to 64 are worried that they're not going to be able to afford health care after they retire. And so, Jason, we have two groups of people here. We have people who qualify for Medicare and we have people who don't qualify for Medicare because they're too young. What are the options for someone who wants to retire before Medicare kicks in at 65?
4: We want to look at that 62-year-old and go, what does this next three years look like, right? So if they came from a workplace plan, they'll have access to COBRA. But COBRA really only covers them for 18 months, and it may be very expensive. They can also look to healthcare.gov to look at the Affordable Care Act, to look at that pricing structure. They can also consider, if they have a spouse, jumping on their spouse's uh, work benefits.
1: Yeah. Now that's interesting. My husband has been in this situation for the past few years. He retired before age 65. Um And and we ran uh, the scenario, you know, what it would it cost him to COBRA versus what would it cost him to go on my plan? And then when he turned 65, we ran the cost of staying on my plan against the cost of Medicare. And he decided to stay on my coverage because Due to his income, it's actually cheaper.
4: When we're looking at whatever the expenses are, we also have to think about where are those sources coming from? Because where you take the money out impacts the potential costs. We're looking at how do we keep income low enough to keep getting the tax credits for Affordable Care Act, but at the same time, where are we getting the money from? Is it IRA? Is it Roth? Is it their brokerage account? to really say, how do we fill this need, but at the same time be worried about Affordable Care Act incomes, worried about whatever their marginal bracket is, and also worry about what that threshold is with Medicare for the IRMA rules as well.
1: So once you go on Medicare, it gets very tricky if you're still earning money. Medicare doesn't cost the same for all people. You have to pay something called an IRMA, which is a fee that's added to your premium amount, depending on how much income you have. Can you explain that?
4: So yeah, the ARMA is really effectively a a two-year look back. So if you're starting Medicare today, it's looking at your 2020 and 2021 income Determine are you paying a premium above and beyond your normal Part B and Part D? Uh, And I think this year's number is $178,000 for a couple. So if a couple made $180,000, that person who's starting B is going to see an increase in their Part B premiums, and if they sign up for Part D, they're going to see an increase in their Part D. They do have a form, though, um, that the Irma form says if you have some big changes, uh, work stoppage, divorce, death, things like that, they'll say, we get it. We're not going to ding you because of these special rules.
1: Are there things that you can do in the years leading up to Medicare enrollment that can help get rid of these IRMA fees?
4: Yeah, you can just be aware of how you're taking income. So for an example is, if you need money out of your IRA, for example, maybe you split it between tax years, right? So if you say, if I'm taking out some number in my IRA and I don't need it all today, if you take out some before December 31st and then another piece, let's say on January 1st, you've split the tax year and thereby potentially reducing that IRMA um threshold.
1: Oh. That's a good strategy. It's it's a complicated strategy yeah, well. I think which is why, you know, it, I mean it's it just seems Jason that this is another time where if you're not really in the know about the nuances, you you talk to a planner and if you have a planner, fantastic. If you don't have a planner, you can uh, go to plan EFE.com and talk to one of the planners from Edelman Financial Engines. Um, they're there to help. You certainly don't want to be navigating this while
2: you're in the middle of some kind of issue that requires you to start paying for you know more money for health care.
1: We're now going to turn a corner and look at whether you should consider creating a living trust as part of your estate plan. What's a living trust versus a will? What are the components
2: of it and why do you need them?
1: A living trust is basically a document that goes along with a will. And and you move your assets into this trust. It's a revocable trust as compared to a, an irrevocable trust, which is very hard to say, but basically what it means is that you can change it while you're alive. And you move your assets into this trust. You select a trustee. Quite often it's you to manage it, um, along with somebody to manage it if you're not able to. And it it's basically a way to avoid probate. Also, it's private. I remember when Jackie Kennedy Onassis died, all of the details of her will became public. And we could open the New York Times and we could read about everything that was said. And If she had had a living trust, which weren't as popular then, none of those things would have been public. So Jason, when it comes to who needs one and who doesn't need one, what are your thoughts?
4: I I tend to look at the option on complexity, right? So I would say those that tend to need trust are those with uh, blended families, uh, large estates, uh, properties in different states. Um, concerns with kids, things like that. So those are usually really good trust candidates. But
2: Doesn't a will help you avoid probate? I mean, isn't that the whole point of a will? You name who gets what, and then boom, you die, and everybody no. gets what I, they're supposed to get.
4: No, unfortunately, the will still causes your state to go through probate. And, and like Gene talked about, it makes it a public affair.
1: Probate in some states is very, very simple. But probate in other states is really complicated and if you own property in a couple of places then you have to go through two different probate processes you and I've talked a lot Soledad about n- how not enough people have wills Still so how do me we to this day I mean do, honestly come on people it's exactly.
2: like the bare minimum it takes no time at all and honestly you're not really protecting your family members if you you know if something devastating happens.
1: Well, you're not protecting your kids either. I mean, a will is the only document that allows people to name guardians for their kids. And so if you don't have a will, you have not named guardians. And I just think that's unconscionable. Um, So get a will. We were talking earlier,
2: obviously, about cognitive decline. Can a a living trust help when that starts happening? Can that be protective?
4: Oh, absolutely. And that's the unique thing about the trust, that the the trust begins its relationship starting day one. So really, the trust should have other pieces in there, which are power of attorney, medically and financially, the advanced directives, all those things. And using Nora's example is allowing her sister to talk on their father's financial ability is probably a priority. But if you don't have those documents, if someone's in cognitive decline, it's much harder to create those documents because you have to have the faculty to be able to sign those documents.
2: I really like having these trust documents and going through them. It was really um, I thought it was really helpful.
4: Creating the trust is one piece of it. The next piece is funding the trust. And sometimes what I found is this is the piece that's lacking. So I have clients who go through the trouble of creating a trust and, and maybe they did it themselves. They fail To fund the trust, which means putting the asset's title in the name of the trust to actually have things owned by the trust, because the trust is really a separate relationship, that if it's not owned by the trust, it potentially goes through probate, creating the trust is one, funding the trust is second, talking to the successor trustees, letting them know, third component
1: and when you're talking about moving assets into trust we're really talking about everything we're talking about houses we're talking about brokerage accounts we're really it, the goal is to move as much as you can into the trust once you set it up so that it it does bypass probate
4: exactly so if every asset outside of maybe retirement accounts are owned by the trust right? The trustee has easier access to everything. And, and what I found is a lot of times clients go through the funding process and then they open some side bank account or they did something on their own and that small account creates some headache for the executor because if it doesn't have the name of the trust, it's potentially going through probate. If you want to talk to someone, give us a call. We're happy to help. Just call 833-PLAN-EFE to schedule an appointment with a wealth planner. Call by Tuesday, April 12th at 10 p.m. and you'll get a free retirement review and financial plan.
1: There is so much here, so we'll come back to this topic. We're going to continue this series on aging throughout the year, but next week uh, we're jumping to a potentially earlier time in people's lives. We're focusing more on the road to empty nesting, so be sure to tune in for that. That's our show for today. If you have a question you want us to answer or a topic you'd
2: like to have us discuss, visit us at planEFE.com. Go to the Everyday Wealth page. If you missed last week's show, you can download the podcast there or really
1: wherever you get your podcasts. We'd like to thank Nora Super from the Milken Institute Center for the Future of Aging. And of course, thank you, Jason Cowens, Wealth Planner with Edelman Financial Engines. Always nice to see you.
0: Thanks, always a fun
1: from Soledad and from me. Have a very good week, everybody.
0: You've been listening to Edelman Financial Engines Everyday Wealth with Soledad O'Brien, Gene Chatsky and Jason Cowens. Tune in each week for fresh and compelling insights and strategies to help elevate your financial potential. To learn more, visit our website, everydaywealth.com or find our show wherever you stream your favorite podcast.